Hey, Carolyn Aarons here, Renovari's Director of Education. I wanted to let you know that the new season of the Renovari Book Club is at hand. It's a way to be intentional about reading for spiritual growth. We prayerfully choose four books, two new ones and two classics, and then we provide a reading plan, study guides, live Q&As with the authors or facilitators, and options for small group discussion. Join by September 30th to get the first book, The Deeply Formed Life by Rich Lotus before reading starts. Learn more at renovari.org slash book club. That's R-E-N-O-V-A-R-E dot org slash book club. I'm saying, no, no, who we are in our very essence, in our being, communicates much in the ways that we are not anxious, in the ways that we are humble, in the ways that we are inquisitive and curious with our neighbor. That's being missional, not just handing out a tract in the middle of the street. It's our very lives are given to partnering with God in this way. Welcome to the Renovare Podcast, a place for honest conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and my guest today is Rich Velotis. He's the author of our first book in this season of the Renovare Book Club, It's titled, The Deeply Formed Life, Five Transformative Values to Root Us in the Way of Jesus. I once heard it said that books are best written in community, and that's truly the case with Rich's book. There's something honest and trustworthy about his writing and the practices he encourages us to work with. I suspect much of that has to do with his love of pastoring the Queens-based multiracial folks of New Life Fellowship. Rich doesn't write or speak in the abstract. It has a lived feel, tested and thoughtful. Rich, your church has a logo of an iceberg. Is this correct? That is correct. Why? What's that about? For a number of years, we have uh, used the iceberg as a symbol for transformation. And so, you know, we're in Queens, so there's, there's no icebergs in Queens. Uh, <laughs> however, um, an iceberg, generally speaking, is, you know, 10% on the surface and 90% beneath the surface. And as you were thinking about transformation uh, as, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, we wanted to get beneath the surface, beyond behavior modification, beyond believing the right things intellectually, but not having it actually make a difference in our day-to-day lives. So the iceberg, uh, we changed it maybe six years ago or so, became just the symbol of when we think about our souls, when we think about the world, when we think about larger matters of race and justice, what does it mean to go beneath the surface? to experience the kind of transformation that God wants to lead us into. And so, uh, and it makes for a nice t-shirt as well. Get a nice iceberg (laughs) on the t-shirt. So we thought, yeah, let's go with it. (laughs) How do folks in your congregation talk about it or think about it? Does it translate well for them? I think it does only because of how often we talk about it. Um, You know, we're, we're talking constantly about going beneath the surface And whether it's in our marriages, whether we're talking about uh, parenting, uh, that image and that language is brought up over and over again. And it's actually a way that, um, you know, last year when we're navigating the realities of political hostility um, or racial uh, animus within our country, uh, I'll 
bring out an iceberg and say, this is what we're seeing on the surface. So for example, politically, we say, this is how people vote. This is how people think about voting. But what's actually happening beneath the surface? What are the fears? What are the idols? What are, what, where are the, where's the anxiety? Um, can we explore some of that beneath the surface? And so because we come back to it regularly in different contexts, um, I think it's become somewhat familiar for the vast majority of those who belong to our congregation. It's a helpful picture. Mm -hmm. Your book, Deeply Formed Life, tell us a little about it. It's a book that is trying to give expression to the five values of our congregation. So the book has five values uh, that emerge out of the life of our church. So I, I didn't just arbitrarily grab some values and, hey, I think I should talk about this. This flows out of the, the life of our congregation. And so those five values are contemplative rhythms, racial reconciliation, interior examination, sexual wholeness, and missional presence. And those five values form the values of our church. We use different language. We use monastic, multiracial, emotional health, marriage to Christ, and missional. But what I was trying to do was trying to, uh, first of all, offer a resource for our people at New Life. In a similar way, when Eugene Peterson put together the message, paraphrase, translation, it started out of pastoral concern for him. He was trying to help people understand the book, book of Galatians and what Paul was saying and offering accessible contemporary language. And then it started branching out to other books and became a whole project. But for Peterson, it began out of pastoral concern. I wrote this book out of pastoral concern, first of all, to shepherd the flock that God has entrusted to my leadership. Uh, and one, when you know, people would come up to me all the time and hear, when you say contemplation, what do you mean? When you say racial justice, what do you mean? And when you talk about, say, when you say there's an integration between sexuality and spirituality, what do you mean? And I got so many of those questions. I thought, I think our congregation would be served and well, as well as future leaders and people who come to our church later and next in the, the next generation by something. So the deeply formed life really emerges out of pastoral concern. But at its core, I, I'm, I'm trying to say something using that kind of language that's been said for, for uh, centuries, for ages. I think about what Paul says in Galatians when he says, I'm in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's the essence of the deeply formed life, the life of Christ being formed in us and through us. I'm just using kind of different language. And the particular cultural moment we find ourselves in to be deeply formed is not just having the life of Christ flowing in us, but it's also recognizing the particular moment we're in and what are the particular issues that require a level of sustained reflection and integration and congruence. And so at its core, the book is trying to resist formational compartmentalization. I'm saying, no, I, I just don't want to be a contemplative. I, I want to work for justice. I just don't want to talk about my interiority and my emotional health. I, I want to speak about racial justice and, and reconciliation. I, I want to pay attention to our bodies and how we're thinking about our bodies and sexuality. So at its core, it's, I'm trying to resist formational compartmentalization and saying all of this belongs as it pertains to the spiritual life. The balance to it. I like the way you frame the book. So each section's a chapter, and then the next one's on practices related to to that value. Um, and it's interesting you say that because it does have a 
a, a lived feel to it, right? I, I, I do think books are best written in, in community of sorts and, and yeah. Eugene's love of his people, right? I think mm-hmm. uh, gave it such um, beautiful flavor. Can we talk just a, a little bit about each one of the sections? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and maybe first with contemplative, um, you were scolded by a monk. <laughs> Can you give us that? that story? I was, yeah, I was scolded by a guy named Publicly. <laughs> Publicly scolded. Those who are familiar with the Enneagram, you know, he was a typical aide on the Enneagram. So um, a guy named William Menninger, a Trappist monk, uh, he and Thomas Keating and Basil Pennington kind of were responsible for the emergence of contemplative prayer and centering prayer within the Catholic Church in the la- last century. I go to a Trappist monastery every year in the Boston area. Uh, and he was in, I think, Snowmass in Colorado, actually. And somehow we connected and invited him to come to our church <laughs> and uh, have a Trappist monk interviewed on a Sunday morning. And I never forgot it where we're having worship and our worship can be pretty loud. And we have a definitely a contemplative spirit to our church, but we get loud in Pentecostal from time to time as well. And we're singing a song and I'm thinking, oh, he must love this. This is so different from the monastery. And the song was, I will be still and know that you are God. And we sang it. And then, you know, after we sang, I will be still and know that you are God, we went right into the next song and sang some other stuff. And so between services, we usually have three services. Between After the first service, uh, after he's shaking hands with everyone in the congregation in the lobby area, he says, Rich, can we have a moment before the next service begins? And I'm thinking, yeah, sure. Yeah, he's going to tell me how much he loves the service. And the first thing he said was, I just wonder how come you don't practice what you sing? To which I'm like, you know, you know, you can go back to snow mass, old man, you know, so, uh, and, and he just said, you said, I'll be still and know that you are God. And there was never a moment of stillness within your liturgy, within the service. And uh, you could be sure for the second service, I went to our worship pastor and said, after this song, take about 30 <laughs> seconds to just be quiet, right? So, so, the, so the old man doesn't rebuke me again after the second service. We have to do this three times. Uh, but yeah, I was rebuked by a monk, and uh, I, I think I, it was a great lesson that day, though, I would say. Yeah. Do you carve out space now in your service? for? We do. And you know what? It's interesting. Even before he came, uh, you know, my predecessor, a guy by the name of Pete Scazzaro, uh, who a lot of folks know in terms of the contemplative and emotional health world, um, he was the one who was in, began to integrate silence in our services. Uh, before the sermon, after the sermon, uh, between songs of just, let's just be still and center our hearts before God and not even a piano playing in the background, just utter stillness and silence. Uh, it just so happened that service, we didn't have that. So it's not like every Sunday we're doing it. Um, but I made sure if we're going to sing about it, we might as well be about it as well. So, (laughs) so yeah, but we incorporate it, uh, more often than not. What do contemplative practices look like in Queens? I think it looks like it does in any other place. It just so happens that Queens is uh, part of the city that never sleeps. Uh, And so the need for contemplative practices are probably a little bit more necessary because of the nonstop noise and pace that we find. So contemplative practices uh, for me and for our congregation looks like Sabbath keeping. It looks like taking a 24-hour period each week to stop, to rest, to delight, 
to give ourselves to recreation and play. You know, Eugene Peterson talked about Sabbath being summarized in two words, praying and playing. Uh, you know, that's, that's contemplative rhythms, getting off the rat race of trying to do everything in, in, in short amount of time in New York. So I think that looks like that. I think it looks like intentional times of stillness and silence, which is something that we have taught our congregation on a regular basis, whether we're talking about one minute in the middle of the day or five minutes or 10 minutes, uh, but that we're crafting and cultivating space for interior silence. You're going to be hard pressed to find exterior silence in New York. But what we've learned is the noise that's even louder than the exterior is what's happening on the interior. And so if we can give ourselves to a sustained focus of uh, interiority and wrestling with those interior voices for the sake of prayer and communion with God, that's contemplative rhythms. And then lastly, I'd say that comes to mind in our, in our context, it's, you know, what, what does it mean to slowly chew on God's word? contemplatively, meditatively, to live our lives under uh, the authority of the scriptures and to give ourselves space for them. So in many respects, I think it looks like everywhere else in our world, it just so happens that uh, like even right now, there's a train passing by. You, you might not be able to hear it, but I hear it loud and clear, the train passing by <laughs> right now. It's just like everyone else, we need it, but uh, in New York, probably especially more so. Your chapter on um, racial justice. Uh, talk a little bit about that. You know, first of all, I, what I wanted to do in, it, there's not a lot of books, and I, I recognize this, on spiritual formation that talk and integrate racial justice and reconciliation. It's often an addendum to it. It's often if you can get around to it. Uh, but first of all, I write out of a particular context that makes this incredibly important. There's 75 nations represented in our congregation, 123 languages spoken in our neighborhood in Queens. Uh, and, you know, Queens is 50% of Queens is foreign born. Uh, you know, to take out $20 at the local ATM, local Chase Bank on Queens Boulevard, uh, it's usually about 15 languages on the screen <laughs> to choose from. Very disorienting. Uh, you know, when the World Cup comes around, uh, lots of problems with our church. You know, when the Olympics comes around, lots of drama in our church. <laughs> and so to talk about race and justice and reconciliation is, um, is, is core to our community. And increasingly, I think it's becoming core to the larger consciousness of the church. And so I wanted to write about it uh, on, on two levels, one theologically and formationally. Um, you know, I talk about race and write about race because I see it as the outworking of the gospel. The gospel is more than just an atonement theory, and the gospel is more than just a postmortem experience or a soteriological transaction. The gospel at its core is the good news that the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus Christ, and that in his life, death, resurrection, and enthronement, the power of sin and death no longer have the last word. And if that is true, that means that the gospel is about creating a new family uh, from all walks of life. If that's how we come to the gospel, which is how I come to the gospel, then race and justice and reconciliation become essential uh, to our lived experience. And so I wrote about it from that theological perspective, but I was, I was trying to offer formational language. When I think about race racism, justice, I often think about it on six levels. 
And I think in order to responsibly address this massive topic, we need a robust framework. And so the framework that I typically uh, go by is the six layers are, you know, there's a theological layer, a historical layer, a sociological layer, an ecclesiological layer, a political layer, and a formational layer. I think in order for us to make great progress in this massive topic requires us to be growing in fluency and wrestling with all these areas. Now, for the sake of the book, I touch on most of those things, but I'm spending a lot of time thinking about formation. Uh, How do we integrate prayer, interiority, self-awareness into our understanding of race and racial reconciliation? And so at its core, I'm trying to offer very accessible handles for individuals and communities to see this as part and parcel of the gospel. I think the practices in that chapter are really helpful. Could you say a word about lament and how that is related to racial reconciliation? Yeah, when I think about lamenting, it's not just about offering tears and cries to the Lord. Uh, You know, Walter Brueggemann um, has done a great work in, in helping us to see, you know, what it means to have a prophetic imagination and um, what it means to offer our cries to God in such a way that opens us up to a new, new possibilities in terms of our social imagination. And our culture, I think what we're seeing is not lamenting often. What we see is self-serving catharsis, where on Twitter or Facebook, what have you, we see something in the news and we articulate our rage, usually against one person or one group of people. And we feel good about ourselves. You know, I got that out off my chest and, and I lamented. Uh, but lamenting is not just about getting something off our chest. It's, it's about lifting heart and mind to God, particularly our cries and our anger and such, in such a way that opens us up to new possibilities, which requires a level of discernment. How do I discern the tears and discern the sadness and the grief and the anger? And I'm not sure lots of people are doing that kind of work because in a society that is marked by sound bites and you know going viral and all the rest, the lament takes lots of time and presence, you know, being present to God and to myself. And a lot of folks don't have the tools uh, or come from a culture in which some of those feelings that emerge when lamenting happens uh, to actually discern God's presence in it. Could you say a word on renouncing whiteness? Yeah. You know, when I wrote that part, that was a really late addition to the book. I had maybe six or seven practices on reconciliation. And when I included the one on whiteness, I did so because I recognized number one in my own life in the congregation that I lead, and then I think in the larger reality of our country and in the world, whiteness has a level of superiority. Uh, and so when I talk about whiteness, I'm talking about the conscious and unconscious ways that, which is also noxious, it's not just conscious, it's a noxious that, that white, so-called white aesthetics, values, experiences, perspectives become normalized, internalized, prioritized, and systematized. 
that's at its core what I'm getting at. So to talk about why I've got myself in trouble, <laughs> 2017, I preached a sermon on individual racial prejudice and institutional racism. And so when I preached on individual racial prejudice, at the end of the service, the church put me on their shoulders, rich, rich, he's our man. If he can do it, no one can. You know, I said, <laughs> I said, we all have blind spots. We all have prejudice. We all have that. Everyone said, amen. Oh, that's why you're our pastor. We love you. And then the next week I said, next week, we're going to talk about institutional racism and structural sin, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and what I did was, Nathan, I, I, I have been very influenced by family systems theory as well. Mm -hmm. And so I said, we talk a lot about genograms at New Life, the ways that we've been shaped by our families of origin and the way that we, we perpetuate the negative legacies and positive legacies from one generation to the next. And so I said, I want to present a genogram of the United States when it comes to race. And I began to just talk about our genogram of slavery and Jim Crow and, and redlining and all the rest. And the ways that um, white normativity and white supremacy has historically played a significant role. Well, uh, got a lot of emails that week. <laughs> didn't, get, didn't get lifted on the shoulders. Huh? <laughs> oh, no. It was like, you know, when Jesus, it says about Jesus in the Gospels where he, he slid through the crowd, you know, they, they get, he was about to get stoned and he somehow, I slid through the lobby, you know, I had to go out through the back door to the parking lot to get home. Uh, you know, lots of people were upset because they saw it, they, they could not delineate ideology from personalities or from people. And I don't know if I did a good job actually delineating the two in that sermon. I've learned a lot since that time. Uh, but renouncing whiteness is about renouncing a particular way of seeing the world, a particular ideology. We're not talking about renouncing white people. However, I would say white people tend to be the primary carriers of it, not the exclusive carriers of it, of a sense of value that's determined on a particular aesthetics. You know, what's good hair and what's bad hair? What's a good neighborhood? What's a bad neighborhood? Uh, it, it, and it's often the case that the, the the closer you are, the more proximate you are to white, the more beautiful and the better and the safer it is. And in many people's minds, the more proximate you are to black, the more inherently dangerous and all the rest. Uh, so renouncing whiteness is trying to think beyond just people into the ways that we have been shaped ideologically by some of these things. You did good with it. I found it really helpful. <laughs> uh, well, well done. I did better in the book than I did in that sermon. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> you learn it. <laughs> Talk a little bit about your section on sexual wholeness. Yeah, that was another one here where I, I thought... <laughs> A part of me is wondering, should this be in this book? You know, am I going to get myself into trouble here? Um, uh, when I think about pastoring, when I think about following Jesus, um, I have been uh, so grateful to be influenced by the sacramental traditions of uh, recognizing the importance of our bodies. And uh, when I think about the incarnation, when I think about the resurrection, uh, I think about a, a God who takes on flesh, and if God takes on a human body, it means our bodies are important as well. And so at its core, to talk about sexual wholeness is not to talk about primarily what we do with our genitalia. It's, it's really about how we recognize our connectedness one to another. That's sexual wholeness. Now, of course, we can get to those places of act, the, the act of sex and sexual intimacy and all the rest. But at its core, sexuality is how do we 
know and be known? How do we connect with others in all kinds of ways, uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually? Uh, and so uh, for me, sexual wholeness was important to include in that because I want us to be thinking formationally about our sexuality. Historically, the church, and this is not just a recent phenomenon, I think throughout the 2000 years of, our, of the church, we have not always done well with our bodies. And whether we're talking about St. Augustine or talking about a revival movements and or uh, evangelical purity cultures, or we have not, we've always had this challenging relationship spiritually with our bodies, which I think is the nature of sin, isn't it? You know, when in Genesis, when sin comes into the world, there's two primary manifestations that we see: it's blame and shame. The woman you gave me is, and, and at the same time, they're hiding in shame. And it's the primordial manifestations of sin. Uh, and so this is not a new phenomenon. And I think the church has wrestled with this many ways. Some traditions may be doing it better than others. But I wanted to include it because I thought we need a reimagination of thinking about our sexuality in a world that has become so polarized and the layers there are so complicated. But like I say to new lifers who come to our church, I say, we should have a sign in the front of our building that says, enter at your own risk uh, <laughs> into this community, because we're going to go places typically that we typically don't want to go, whether we're talking about race or politics or sexuality or money, uh, we're actually going to go there. So, But sexual wholeness at its core is about trying to show the, the connectedness between our spirituality and our sexuality. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in that, in that chapter. Missional presence. Those two chapters, in our, in our context at New Life, we try to hold together the polar opposite pools of the monastery and the mission field. And um, I added that to it because I, I see our engagement in the world as profoundly something connected to formation. Uh, I don't see it as, again, um, an addendum to the Christian life. I see it as part and parcel of what it means to be followers of Jesus. And by missional presence, the way that I'm trying to approach it, first of all, is uh, I think about the Trinity, first of all, when I think about missional presence. That's how I try to frame uh, my own understanding of missiology. What, that the Trinity is in you know, this, uh, this eternal dance, and that this dance, this circle, is, is consistently widening to embrace and incorporate the world around us, that there's never a moment where God is not moving towards the world in love. And so when I think about missional presence, I'm thinking about the God who goes before us, the God who embraces us, the God who widens that Trinitarian circle to invite us into relationship, into communion. That's how I think about missional presence, first of all, that it's, it's something that happens at the very, in the very being of God, the very essence of who God is. Uh, and so out of that theological conviction, what does it mean for us to find ourselves dancing with God? and widening the circle to incorporate and invite others as well. Uh, and, you know, when you start thinking practically about evangelism or thinking about faith and work or justice, um, these are just the ways that it happens. But at its core, you cannot separate mission from the very being of God. God is mission. God is always on mission. And so the missional presence is rooted in that. But also missional presence is the way I'm trying to presented is it's rooted in becoming a kind of person as opposed to just doing particular things that we do out of our particular being. 
Uh, and missional living and is often disconnected. Our being and our doing is often so dichotomized and fragmented, uh, bifurcated. I'm saying, no, no, who we are in our very essence, in our being, communicates much in the ways that we are non-anxious, in the ways that we are humble, in the ways that we are inquisitive and curious with our neighbor. Um, that's being missional, not just handing out a tract in the middle of the street. It's our very lives are given to partnering with God in this way. How was writing this book helpful for you? Or was it? <laughs> I don't want to make the assumption. <laughs> very much so. You know, uh, I think about in college, I heard one quote from Francis Bacon. I think it's the only quote I remember from Francis Bacon. Uh, but uh, writing makes a person more exact. That was Bacon's quote. And I never forgot it. I heard it, I was maybe 21 or something. I said, oh, that's interesting. And I kind of filed it away in my brain and never forgot it. Um, I have found that writing creates a internal clarity in me. In writing all this, first of all, um, I was discovering what I believe. You know, that's another kind of writing maxim that you, uh, you, you discover what you believe after you write it. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And so I'm like, oh, that's what I believe. Uh, very nice. Uh, so in one way it was revelatory, uh, writing. It was, I was, I was, uh, you know, writing is, uh, there's a self-discovery that takes place through the discipline of writing. And, um, I think more than anything, the, the chapters on interior examination were actually the chapters that I experienced the most amount of internal breakthrough because I was capturing just parts of my soul especially when anxiety was coming or paying attention to my reactions that was leading me into some really profound places of self-awareness and God-awareness as well. So yeah, I would say the writing, uh, beyond just the arduous kind of, uh, I'm a wordsmith as well. I'm trying to figure out as a preacher, as a writer, I'm trying to get the right words and the right cadence and the tone. Um, but more than anything, I think it facilitated a lot of my own self-discovery which I think is the gift of the discipline of writing. Writing's learning, mm -hmm. at least at least in a good sense. And you do write quite well. I very much enjoyed this. Rich, really nice to meet you. Good to hear about your work. Thank you. Thank you, Nathan. Yeah, thank you. It's a gift to be with you and the work that you guys are doing at Renovari. So this has been a gift. Thank you. Again, that was Rich Philotus talking about his new book, The Deeply Formed Life which just so happens to be our first book in this season of the Renovare Book Club. You can find out more information about the book club at renovare.org. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. This work is made possible by donations from people like you. You can support this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find articles and other resources at our website, renovare.org. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled, Be Kind. And until next time, be well, friends. Be well. <laughs>